This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 36. We have a unique cross-functional vantage point in the organization, and I think that sets us up to help leaders diagnose the business problem or identify what it is that the business actually needs to do to succeed. But I think if HR only enters the conversation after sort of that question has been crystallized around what does a business need to do to succeed, and we're only there to work on the solution, I think we're too late. I think the role of HR is really to help formulate that answer and then work together with our business leaders on delivering what's needed. Why do the most successful HR leaders focus on adding value while reducing complexity? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Hey everyone, before we get to this week's guests, I want to give another plug for Mark Efron's Future of HR workshop, which will take place September 19th in Boston. The Future of HR 2023 workshop will feature seven of the world's best CHROs interacting with you and 99 other HR leaders to address the future of HR. Yes, the workshop is limited to only 100 HR leaders attending. Organized as a workshop, not a conference, you'll get practical insights and a lot of personal interaction with the CHRO speakers, as well as your peers on topics that you care about most. This is an awesome opportunity to network and learn from other HR leaders in our field. Even better, 100% of the proceeds will go to support our profession, I'll be attending this year's workshop, and I hope to see you there. To learn more, go to futureofhr2023.com. That's futureofhr2023.com. With that, my guest this week is Miriam Ortz, Executive Vice President and CHRO at CNS Wholesale Grocers and Symbotic, which is an industry leader in supply chain solutions and wholesale grocery supply in the United States. Before joining CNS, Wholesale Grocers, Miriam was SVP Human Resources for Avis Budget Group, and prior to that spent nine years at PepsiCo in a variety of HR leadership roles. Besides being an accomplished HR executive, Miriam's also the co-author of One Page Talent Management, which is widely considered the Bible of talent management, and if you've not read it, I highly recommend you do. Miriam is a smart, strategic, and pragmatic leader, and I know you'll enjoy this conversation as we discussed... Why she believes every HR leader needs to assess their programs against the one-page talent management value complexity curve, how her time at PepsiCo helped prepare her to be a CHRO, why HR leaders are best positioned to help leaders diagnose and solve their most pressing business challenges, the common pitfalls that can limit an HR leader's success, and why power imbalances within the HR team can cause dysfunction and how to fix it, and much, much more. Miriam, welcome to the Future of HR. Thanks for stopping in today. How are you? I am good, JP. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it is great to have you on the podcast today. And I want to start things off talking about your early career. You started your career, at least earlier in your career, you were at Avon. Talk to us more about your time at Avon, writing 
one-page talent management and just how that's impacted you and your HR career? Sure. So JP, what I would say is the beauty of the experience at Avon is that I got to see firsthand how talent practices can enable company success, but also how they can constrain company success. In my time there, the company experienced rapid growth. And this was actually before Mark joined the organization. And then what happened is that there were really gaps in succession, in talent, and it created risk for the business. And that was all despite the fact that there were some very sophisticated, complex processes that were in place. And so when Mark joined the business, a lot of the work that we did there together was building core talent processes that were grounded in science, that were very simple, very executable. But we were able to see in real time how that helped the business, it accelerated the talent pipeline, and it helped the organization achieve the results that were needed. So that was really the context in which we wrote that book. And I would say that in writing the book, I already came from an HR lens of sort of having studied it as a grad student before I ever practiced it. So I think I had that view in terms of thinking of the discipline as grounded in science and the work in trying to figure out how do you utilize all the research and the science in a way that will drive business results. But one of the things that was interesting is while we were working on the book, I spent a lot of time doing research to try to see what goes against the prevailing science. You know, what might be out there that's important sort of nuance or exception that we have to highlight? And what was so interesting is that it became pretty clear that actually there isn't that much that contradicts the kind of core prevailing science that we all know. It's actually supported by decades of research, and it's just that it's often ignored. So I think that did really influence me in making me even more skeptical of the fads and the trends and the benchmarking that tends to surface and, and drive a lot of the work and really help keep me focused on the core foundational areas, the things that we know work, and then keeping it really simple. And the one other thing I would say probably, you know, came out of some of that work was looking out for complexity, not just in HR, but even across the business, because the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The road to complexity is definitely paved with good intentions. And it, it doesn't happen just in HR. It happens across business areas. But I think all the work on the book probably resulted in me being particularly watchful to look out for that um, and try to stop it wherever we can. I guess what I'm interested to know more about, Miriam, is when you think about, because there's some great tools in one-page talent management, are there one or two that are your favorite you're still using today that you just say every company should be thinking about this and do it this way? There's one that I would highlight, and it, it goes to exactly what you were just talking about, and that is the complexity curve. There's always going to be asks for additions, and some of them are good and some aren't, right? But anytime you have a process or program, it's, there's always going to be a pull from either the business or sometimes from HR, like, can we refine it? Can we improve it? Can we... Uh, elaborate on it. And so using that curve to really look at feature creep and say, does this really add incremental value? And at what point is that value dropping off um, or getting in the way of the ability to execute? Because if you don't execute, it doesn't matter that it's a better process. It's actually completely worthless. And that curve in the book is something that I still think about on a regular basis. And again, not just related to HR work, but even just as we think about 
oftentimes business work. Yeah, that value complexity curve is something that listeners can go ahead and just Google that probably and find it. But more importantly, read one page talent management. It is really something to think about. And I think it resonates also with leaders when you start to show them, hey, are we, is this adding value or complexity? And they'd say, wait, you're right. Maybe it is getting too complex and we're going too far. But I think, Miriam, the other thing is interesting. Just tell us more about writing the book and how hard was that process and has it changed your life since then? Obviously, Mark has gone out and started a whole company. I always feel like you went a different path and went to Pepsi. Was there a moment where you thought, should I join Mark and start becoming a consultant? So actually, I was at PepsiCo. So we started working on the book together while I was at Avon. And then I went to PepsiCo in uh, 2008. So a book didn't come out for uh, another couple of years. So we were working on the book while I was at PepsiCo as well. And no, I never really contemplated shifting and going out to consulting. One of the things that I really enjoy about the work that I do is the ability to directly see the impact on the business. And in consulting, you get to have a very broad view and go impact a lot of different businesses. That's absolutely one way to do it. But I've always enjoyed being inside in the leadership team, helping to shape the direct of the business um, from that side of it. So yeah, different path, but I have never really mm-hmm. looked back. Well, we're grateful that you wrote the book. It is a big contribution to the field. And you've had a very successful career. As you said, you joined PepsiCo. You're there for almost nine years. You had a variety of leadership roles in your time at PepsiCo. And PepsiCo is really one of the academy companies for HR. And I'm curious, how has that helped build your capacity and capability to become a CHRO that you are now? Yeah, I mean. I am so grateful for my time at PepsiCo because it is a company that is willing to make real investments in their talent and stretch and support your development. There's probably a few things I highlight from my time there that I think have made a difference. First of all, as I said, companies really willing to invest and give you different experiences. One that I would specifically call out is I had the opportunity to move to London, take an expat assignment and lead HR for a large division there. It had the full portfolio, so beverage, snacks, you know, nutrition. It was a business that was going through some real challenges. So there was a clear turnaround remit and it was just really meaningful work. But more than that, it was far away enough from the mothership that you kind of get to be a CHRO in your own right with that leadership team, run that business. But at the same time, you still have support and resources from the enterprise level. So it was really a perfect prep role um, where you kind of get to be a CHRO with some training whales. And I'm grateful for that experience. What I would also say about PepsiCo is beyond some of the specific roles that contributed, there is just a really strong sense there that HR and talent management are fundamental to running the business. And so it really creates space for HR leaders to operate with business leaders, partnering to run the business together. And you're just sitting in the seat where the levers you pull happen to be people levers. So I think that also goes a long way and went a long way for me and kind of how I thought about the CHRO role. And then finally, I got to work with exceptional leaders there, both in and out of HR. It was fantastic learning opportunities at the time, but also turned into a network of friends and colleagues that I still call to this day for perspective and wisdom. And that's been really priceless. Miriam, recently we had Dave Ulrich on the podcast and he uses the phrase, HR is not about HR. 
In your words, what does that mean to you? So I listened to fantastic podcast with Dave, by the way. You know, what that means to me is that we are always starting with the business. What does the business need or what's the business problem that we're trying to solve or what's the business opportunity that we're trying to pursue? And then as HR leaders, right, we have levers around people and talent and culture that we can pull on to deliver those business results. That's how I think about it. And I do want to build on something Dave said, if I can, because he talked about asking senior leaders, you know, what does the business have to do to succeed? And building out, I think he described it as like a menu of options on the HR side to drive that agenda. And I did just want to highlight that HR is often really well positioned to think about that question. We have a unique cross-functional vantage point in the organization. And I think that sets us up to help leaders diagnose the business problem or identify what it is that the business actually needs to do to succeed. And then once we help them crystallize that, we're also really set up to help figure out how we're going to deliver it. But I think if HR only enters the conversation after sort of that question has been crystallized around what does a business need to do to succeed, and we're only there to work on the solution, I think we're too late. I think the role of HR is really to help formulate that answer and then work together with our business leaders on delivering what's needed. That's a great insight because, of course, we're excited to help the business if we have a clear business strategy, but it's better if we're actually helping to set that strategy or identify what the strategy needs to be. And I agree that we are uniquely positioned because as an HR leaders, most leaders are really open to having a conversation with us about how things are going, how, what's the talent, what's the organization needs you have, what are you facing? And if you're listening to that business mindset, you can really quickly figure out what's happening. And you can see, like you said, much broader typically than other functions that are more worried about supply chain or operations. They're worried about their day-to-day. We have the opportunity and really the pleasure and honor to be able to go across cross-functionally and talk to these leaders. It's a great insight as you're thinking about how do we help build the business strategy, understand the problem. How do you do that? What are the tips and tricks you'd recommend for HR leaders to help define the strategy and not be defined from somebody else? There's always a lot of discussion in HR around having that seat at the table. And I think it's easy to look at it as looking for permission, but I think it happens organically when we are driving in the right way. If you take what Dave was saying, and if we as HR leaders are business-minded first, and if we actually have taken the time to learn and understand the business, and in our conversations with leaders, we're bringing insights that help them think about the business in a different way, they're not going to want to have a business strategy discussion without you. They're not going to want to sit around with the CFO or the COO or whoever it is, and be thinking about the future of the business without their HR person by their side. So I think it really very much is chicken egg. The more we are oriented towards the business and setting our agenda that way, the more it becomes very clear to leaders the value of that perspective and the more we're just going to organically be part of that conversation. Yeah, that's a great perspective. And what can HR leaders do to have the most meaningful impact on the business and business success? Well, first of all, in the context of what we were just talking about, I think number one thing is learn the business. You can't really talk about a business perspective or coming up with solutions that drives business success if you don't understand that business. And I think that that has to happen in a really hands-on way 
So spending time in the field, you know, if it's a tech organization, sit in development meetings, join customer meetings, listen to call center calls. No matter how much time I spend doing that, I always find that next time I'm out in a field meeting or in a meeting with a customer, I learn something else. And at some point, that depth of understanding is absolutely valuable. So I think number one, it's really learn the business. If you learn the business, you can help solve for business problems in a completely different way. But I I think there are some other things. I would say data and facts are your friends. It's a much more challenging conversation if everyone is just sitting around sharing their opinion when you can actually bring insights to the discussion. And as you mentioned, you know, with HR and the fact that, you know, we can often see across, we often can also connect our data related to people to different measures of business success or key business KPIs. Being able to bring that story really helps make space and shows where some of the value is. I'm an HR being part of that business conversation. And then the last thing I would say, and I would share transparently, JP, this wasn't always the easiest one for me, but something I really learned over time, and that is flexibility in how we go about our work. I think it's easy for HR leaders. We often see very clearly a point, you know, or have a clear point of view on something that should be done or how things should be done. But there's often a lot of ways to get to the destination. And just like we want to be part of the business conversation, we need to invite our business leaders to be a part of shaping the HR agenda and in some cases, even shaping specific solutions. And the more we co-create and the more we do these things kind of outside the silo, or as Dave said, come up with a menu of options, you know, because maybe there's good choice, or maybe we're flexible to do something a little bit more incrementally. If the organization is not ready for the big change that we think is right, the more we bring that flexibility, the stronger the partnership gets. And ultimately, that strong partnership is usually more valuable than any specific initiative and maybe getting it 100% perfect or right. I think that being flexible is something I think all HR leaders, especially if you're really ambitious and you've got a strong point of view, it can be challenging. But you're right, as I have learned, I try to meet the client or the customer or the business leader where they're at. And it's amazing sometimes when you bring them in to co-create and almost put the problems back on your leaders and say, what do you want to do here? They're like, why aren't you the HR? Aren't you supposed to solve this? And say, well, I have a point of view, but at the end of the day, you're the CEO, you're the business leader. What do you think is going to be the right solution? And now start to play that coach with them. And it feels a little bit like you're giving up the power because they expect you to have the answer. But what I have found is that surprisingly enough, they start to take ownership of it and it can surprise you. But, and also now, of course, the destination is the business success. So how do you get flexible to say, I don't really care how we get there as long as we get there. Yeah. And I've become a really big fan of options. Because to your point, right, why are they looking to HR? We do have expertise, right? It's not, we're not just one more person in the room. We do have expertise in our domain. But since there are often a lot of different ways to get there, rather than just choosing our preferred approach, I find bringing option opens up the dialogue. Sometimes we select one of them. I'm usually transparent if there's one that I think is better than the others, um, but that may not be the path that we go. And sometimes it becomes a springboard for developing a whole different option that actually makes even better sense uh, than the ones that we came up with. Optionality, I'd say, is a big one. That's a great tip. What about in your experience or some of the common pitfalls that HR can fall into that can limit their impact to the business? 
So I'll share a few, and I have code names for a couple of them that I use with my team. It just helps us watch out for it as it sometimes happens. So one is what I call vending machine HR. I think that is a common pitfall, and that is where there's a perception that we need to give the leader exactly what they asked for. Not negating everything we just discussed about flexibility and meeting part way, but we're not a vending machine. We're not there for someone to come and say, I've diagnosed the problem and identified the solution and mapped it all out. And here, I want the Fritos you know, version of this program. And can you guys just produce it? That's not where we add value. And I do think it is a common pitfall because there are HR leaders that have built careers doing absolutely that and getting kudos because they're giving the leader what they want. Now, over the long term, that often doesn't end up playing out because the leader may not be the best person to actually be designing those solutions or knowing exactly what they really need. But it can feel nice in the short term because they're like, oh, great, this is what I wanted and you gave it to me. So that is definitely one pitfall. I think another is kind of running HR like with a playbook. And it's the exact opposite of our conversation related to HR is not about HR. It's about the business. It's, you know, there's sometimes a tendency around there's these like six areas I, you know, have to think about talent management and total rewards and engagement and, you know, whatnot. And I'm going to either go down the list or choose my favorite. You know, I've talked to HR leaders that are like, well, I'm really all about leadership development. Well, that's great that you're all about leadership development, but maybe that's not what the business really needs right now is a top priority. So I think that's another pitfall where there's sort of a feeling that got to get every area to a certain level or a belief that a few areas are the most important rather than formulating an agenda, as we were just talking about, in line with what the business needs. Um, and that one, one more that throw, throw out in a very different vein is wanting to be liked. There's sometimes a sense of the HR partner, um, because relationships are important and it's a role where collaboration is absolutely important, that you want to be the sort of well-connected, popular person in the room. And if you're asking tough questions and you're sometimes pushing for tough decisions, then it's not going to always feel comfortable. And you might sometimes find yourself in discussions where you know you're pushing the line with someone and maybe annoying or frustrating them a little bit. But that's that's part of the job and being comfortable that there are going to be times that it feels a little bit contentious and being okay that you might not be on the favorite person list every day. I think that's really important. The last one's interesting because I think, you know, we probably all of us in HR have a little bit of a people pleaser in us. But I think what differentiates some of the best HR leaders is be able to be tough and be fair and have conflict and do that in a conflict in a, in a positive, constructive way, you know, be more matter of fact about it. But it doesn't always feel good to do that for sure. But these are great tips. I love the vending machine. And definitely, if you're bringing a playbook, it becomes really obvious, I think, to companies and leaders that you're running a playbook you ran before. And if it's out of sync, you know, that's a good way to find yourself out of a job, I think. So be careful on that one. The other topic that's been really hot lately are HR operating models. In your opinion, what are the key factors that should guide how HR is organized? Or how do you think about HR operating models in general? So I would say I think at this stage, most contemporary organizations have an HR operating model that's somewhere 
in line with the Elric model. And there's probably not that much I could add, considering that you've already had, you know, Dave as a guest. There's probably not that much I could add. They're all fairly similar. What I think is interesting that I share is, you know, I've spent time thinking about HR operating model is two things. One is, regardless of exactly how you've set up your model, I think it's really important that there aren't big imbalances of power. So when in some models, the felt experience of the function is that it's all about the COEs or you know HRBP's rule, when that happens, it becomes really dysfunctional. So I think that's one thing to look out for is however you've set it up, and it should be set up to work for your business and your context, but however you've set it up, is there a healthy balance where everyone plays a different role, but there's perception that they're all really important and that's respected. And then the only other thing I would say is it should be pretty seamless for the business. It's okay if as a function, we have to spend time talking to each other and you know figuring out um, some of the nits of what sits where and how it gets done, but it should feel really simple to the business. If the business needs an entire manual just to figure out who to go to and how to get the support they need, that, that probably needs to be reworked. That's such a great point, especially around the balance of power, because I, I've been in organizations where it is sort of apparent that people are really keen in on the COE or the HR business partners, and it does create a weird dynamic, not only from the business, but really the HR partners or the talent CEO. You can start to see the competition, and all of a sudden now we're fighting versus working together. So I think that's a great call out for people to recognize. And if you're an HR organization where that's happening, maybe call that out to each other and say, hey, we need to balance this back out, right? And get this right. The other thing you, I think, have done a great job, I know, in your career is building strong HR teams. And that is so important to you. Tell us more about how you assess talent, what you look for, and, and what you think about when you build a team. So first of all, there's a few things that I look for. I generally look for these in talent in general when I'm interviewing leaders, but I'm particularly focused on when I'm interviewing talent for the HR team. One is intellect. I know that sometimes not PC to say, but that is that is true. And particularly, I look for talent that is kind of smart about connecting dots. Because as we talked about earlier, the way HR is set up to work across the enterprise, that ability to make connections and draw insights from what can seem like disparate points is really, really important. I look for leaders that are driven and self-motivated. That probably correlates pretty well with conscientiousness, which is one of the few dimensions of personality that has been shown to actually predict success. And then I look for leaders that are not jerks. I don't know if you remember, there was a book, The No A-Hole Rule. Do you remember that book? Sure, Bob Sutton. Yeah, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on, on this podcast. But some people that are really smart and really driven also can be A-holes. And I've personally never subscribed to the beer test. You know, this idea that you should hire people that you'd want to kind of go have a beer with. I actually don't need to want to hang out with someone for them to be a great addition to the team. But I do think if someone is a jerk, then it becomes really corrosive to the whole team. And no matter how smart and driven they are, it's not worth it. So those are some of the things that I look for. How do you assess someone's IQ in terms of maybe connecting the dots? It's a little bit of a different test. It's not so much like we're answering, memorizing facts, but really how they put things together. So are there questions you particularly ask individuals? So one of the questions that I always ask, and it 
can often give insight to this area, but also some of the other things we talked about that are important is I usually ask candidates to tell me about what they've done that's had the biggest impact on the business. And I get really good insights from that. First of all, because you can tell to our earlier discussion how well that person really understands the business that they support. You can tell if they identified their work to drive the business, or in some cases, really just because it was something, as we were just discussing, that they're, they're passionate about. But you can also see how they formulated the solution. And it does absolutely often give insight into whether or not they were able to kind of take different points around what they understood about the business challenges or the context in which they're operating or what might contribute or not to results. So I always really like that question. You can also get a good sense oftentimes if the person is collaborative as they talk about how they drove the work that impacted the business. It works at every level. So I've asked this question literally to talent early in their career and talent late in their career, and it's equally insightful. Although now that I've shared this with you, I feel like the cat is out of the bag and I'm going to have to come up with another question. That's true. Well, the cat's out of the bag for me because that's actually the similar question that I've always asked. But also tell us more, Miriam, why you don't want to get a beer with people you work with and why I'm just teasing, of course. But why do you feel like is that, you know, for a lot of people that they're always like, do I like this person, right? Tell us why you say, well, that's not as important. And how do you distinguish because you have to work with them a lot. And let me be clear, if they're on my team at that point, I will absolutely want to get a beer with them. Well, I don't like beer, but I want to get a glass of wine with them and they can, they can drink beer if that's their, their preferred beverage. Um, but of course, if they're on the team, I want to do that because connection and relationship is very important. I never like the test because I think it is a real shame to filter out talent based on your personal preferences around maybe some shared interest or some shared style. There are excellent hires when I think back over the years who are fantastic talent and made big contributions that maybe just at least in that first meeting or two, you know, style wise, we wouldn't be two people that would hang out if we didn't land up working together. And I don't know that it does any service to the business to surround yourself with people that just happen to be the same people that would be your buddies, if you will. I think you hire the best talent that you can for that role. Like I said, no jerks, right? Shouldn't be corrosive. But if you do that, then you make the investment because working together is important and spending time together to build effective relationships is important. And then you make the investment. And if someone's the right person for the team, there will be always there will always be things that you can find to connect on to make sure the relationship part happens. Last question for you, Miriam. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? So I have to first say that I think that's a very tricky question in a world where just in the last three years, we've like redefined what we thought was going to happen um, every year of those three years. I remember when a long-term strategic plan was 10 years. When I was at PepsiCo, we would do 10-year development plans for top high potential talent. Now I feel like a three-year plan is still with a hope and a prayer that it's going to have some relevance by the time you get to year two because we've been living in such volatile times. I don't know 10 years out, but I'd say at least over the next few years, the word that I would go for would be agile. I think over the last few years, we have seen such unprecedented volatility. Like you think literally just last 36 months, we went through covid worldwide supply chain disruption, labor shortages, historic inflation, huge shifts in expectations of where and how work gets done. 
entered a recession, maybe, right? Depending on uh, which definitions you use. And now certainly there's um, not a lot of alignment on what we can expect in the next few years. And I think we're going to continue to see a lot of volatility because we are living in fairly uncertain times. But I think businesses that can pivot and don't get mired in what yesterday's plan was and instead could look forward and rescan the landscape and go after opportunities, those will be the ones that can win. And I think what that will mean for HR is we are going to have to be more agile than ever, both at an organization level and helping the organizations move quickly, as well as with individuals and leaders. And so that will mean also shifting our plans and being more responsive than maybe we've ever had to in the past. Miriam, thank you so much for being on the Future of HR podcast. Great insights. Thank you. This was fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Thanks again to Miriam for insights and perspectives on how HR can add value and reduce complexity. It was a great conversation. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Sam Hammock, Executive Vice President, CHRO of Verizon, which is number 23 on the Fortune 500 list with over $136 billion in revenue. In our conversation, Sam and I discuss her career journey, why she believes in the power of being transparent, empowerment, and setting clear expectations. This was an inspiring conversation and episode, and you don't want to miss this one. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.